Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dropping In Surf Show. My name is Rob Case. I'm a paddling technique expert located in Northern California. And today on this riveting episode, we're going to talk about tides and how tides affect our surfs and how we can use our tides to tides to our advantage. Um, for those of you that haven't listened to the show before, the show tries to tie in math and science into the world of surfing and how it might help us progress, uh, get better and have more fun out in the water. So let's dive into it. So the tides, um, I'd like us to start with what the tides are and then, and then end with how are these, how is this knowledge of the tides going to help us as surfers or hurt us as surfers? Uh, and one of the things that, that I learned very early on is that the tides actually don't come in or out. Uh, they don't really rise or fall, <laughs> which is bizarre. So what happens is that there's actually a bulge of water. And there's actually two of them um, on different sides of the earth um, caused by the sun and then ca caused by the moon. And what happens is that we rotate inside that bulge so i know it's it's a bizarre concept but think of a bulge on one side of the earth and a bulge of water on the other side of the earth and then the earth is rotating into and out of that bulge so at certain parts of the planet there is no bulge and in other parts of the planet it is a bulge so high tide would be where the bulge is and low tide would be where the bulge isn't but the bulge kind of creates this ellipse around the earth. And then we rotate into and out of those bulges. And, and that's really what's happening. But our perception, our perception is that we, well, our perception is that the tide is going up or down. The bulge is because of the moon's gravitational pull. So as the as the moon rotates and orbits around us, because there's this difference between one side of the earth and the other side of the earth, the water stretches along the line the moon's tidal forces are pulling on. And, and, and technically it does that for everything. Water is just more responsive because it's a liquid. It, it's actually happening to solid, um, to the solid earth as well, but on a much, much, much smaller scale. We can't see it. But at the same time of the moon's gravitational pull stretching these bulges out, you also have the sun. And the sun's tidal force and gravitational force is also pulling on it. And in the sun and the moon's gravitational forces, they either line up with each other or they're more kind of like opposite, right? So you might have a moon bulge of a certain amount. And then if you add the sun on top of that, then that ends up being a pretty large high tide. Um, you could also, and that's typically called a spring tide um, when there's a, say a full moon or, or a new moon and the moon and earth and the sun are all lined up. That means the bulges are all um, adding on top of each other. And so you have a really, really high, 
high tide and spring tide. A neap tide is when the moon is more 90 degrees to where the sun is in relation to the earth, right? So it's kind of like making a 90 degree and the earth is the corner. And so when you have a neap tide, you have more of a low tide because you have the, 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 the moon's bulge, and but you also have the sun's bulge. And if if it's a time of the year where they're pretty equal, then the neap tide ends up uh, the, the the sun and the and the moon bulges both cancel each other out effectively. So I was I was always under the impression that the moon affected the tides, but I didn't know that the sun affected the tides. And so when I learned about gravitational pull back in I want to say high school, I was curious as to well. Well, what I know about the sun is that, and gravitational pull is that it has to do with mass, right? That's one of the, the two factors. And the sun is so much bigger than the moon. So why doesn't the sun impact the tides as much as the moon? Well, generally the moon is about two thirds of the tidal force where the sun is about a third. And it really depends on the distance um, from those relative objects. So, you know, because the orbit around the earth, the moon's orbit around the earth is elliptical and the earth's orbit around the sun is elliptical. There are times in which the moon is closer to the earth and there are times there that the earth is closer to the sun. Uh, and there are times that happen where both of that happens. And we'll talk about that in a second, but just in general, to answer my question of why isn't the sun you know, so much stronger of, a, of an impact than say a third, a quarter to a third of the impact. And, and the moon makes such, it's so much smaller, right? So the, the sun, just to give you some perspective, the sun is 27 million times larger than our moon. You're looking at that and going, or at least I looked at it and going, why isn't that impacting it so much more? It's really because of the distance, uh, in relation to the earth. So the, the sun is 390 times further from the earth than the moon is. And so any gravitational force needs to be diminished proportionally, essentially, uh, through some, some, some math, right? And so that's why the moon does have a much stronger tidal force than the sun, even though the sun is 27 million times the size of the moon. Um, but the sun does have an impact on the earth, right? Um, the, the, the tides the moon raises on earth are technically or basically the same, no matter the phase. Um, but it's, it's whether or not it lines up with the sun, whether it's additive or, or not. Um, so when the, when the moon, the sun, well, really when anything cosmically is lined up, it's called a, a syzygy. And so during a full moon and a new moon, the, the three are lined up. And so you have the syzygy and then you have the bulges lining up. That's, that's really the main, the main point there. So why aren't the tides the same high and low all year round, right? Um, it turns out that, that we, there's a couple of reasons to this. So I'll start with the rotation of the earth in, in respect to the 
uh, orbit of the moon. Okay, so we are rotating slightly faster than the moon orbits. So if you think about this, the, 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 the rotation, if I'm on Earth and I'm spinning, the moon's orbit is slightly behind me. It's, it's lagging. It's always trying to like catch up. So if you think of the water as me now, so let's say I'm the water, and the moon has this gravitational pull on me, then as I'm turning away from it, I'm turning, I'm turning counterclockwise, I'm turning away from it, and the, and the moon is kind of like lagging. It's, like, it's pulling on me. And what it's trying to do, the moon is tugging on the bowl. Just, it's tugging on me, the water, trying to line it back up. And so it does that against the counter rotation of the earth as the earth spins. Um, and so technically that is slowing down the rotation of the earth. And there's been science proving that, uh, that the earth is slowly, very slowly slowing down, very, very slowly slowing down over the, over the, uh, many, many, many years. Um, but that's not the point. The point is that, that that's one of the reasons why there's going to be different highs and lows throughout the year. Uh, another one has to do with the orbit, uh, the elliptical orbits of the moon and the, and the earth around the sun. So it's not a perfect circle. And so because of that, there are times throughout the year in which the moon is closer to the earth, like what's called perigee um, and apogee. So when, when the, throughout the month, there is a perigee and an apogee. Um, and then throughout the year, there is a, per, per, I'm going to butcher this, perihelion and an aphelion. Um, and that's to do with the orbit of the earth around the sun. So sometimes, so what that basically means is perihelion is, peri is closer and uh, aphelion is further away. So apogee is further away for the moon. It's the moon is the furthest from the from uh, from the Earth in its orbit, and and perigee is the moon being closest to the Earth in its orbit, and perihelion is the Earth being closest to the Sun in its orbit throughout the year, and aphelion is the furthest away. So, generally, you have January around January second is the Earth is the closest to the Sun, and July second the Earth is the furthest away from the Sun, um, and then perigee and apogees for the uh, for the moon. Well, that happens every month because there's a new, the, the, the earth, is, the moon is almost rotating around the uh, earth um, uh, about, it's about 27.322 days uh, is, uh, is the orbit of the moon generally. So you have these elliptical orbits and times of the year in which when the moon and the sun kind of working together are lined up different angles in different geometries that are pulling on these bulges in different ways. And so that's another reason why there's not kind of the same high and low all year round. Um, it's, it's these, these impacts of the strength of the poles. Now also, you got to also think it's not a perfect ellipse in a singular, singular plane. Uh, the, <laughs> I know this is super complex, but the, the orbit of the moon is actually on a tilt our axis is on a tilt, the, the earth, 
and our orbit around the sun is on a tilt. So there's lots of things like on a tilt. And so the relative distance from those masses change throughout the year or throughout the month um, or throughout the day based on the rotation. So you have that causing problems with why there's not the same high and low all day. Um, you know, that, that just a note, the perigee, if you, an example of the perigee where the, the moon is closest to the earth, um, if you've ever seen the moon appear larger on the horizon, that's normally like a super moon. That's normally a perigee. Um, it, the moon's not any bigger. It just appears closer and it's a bit of a trick of the eye. Um, but so at any rate, it's the tilt of the earth. It's the location of the orbit in relation to the sun and to the moon and the moon's elliptical orbit timing all play a factor in why there aren't just the same highs and lows all year round. So question is how many, um, how many tides are in the day? So you have uh, generally two highs and two lows every lunar day. And that's called semi-diurnal. Uh, two highs and two, two lows every lunar day. So a lunar day, lunar day is the time it takes for a specific site on the earth to rotate from an exact point under the moon to that same point under the moon, right? So to us, our perception is that a day is 24 hours, right? But remember, the orbit of the moon, I mentioned, is a little bit slower. So a, a lunar day is not 24 hours. So as we're rotating, it's orbiting around, right? And so it's actually lagging a little bit. And so a lunar day, from our perspective, is 24 hours and 50 minutes. So there's that 50-minute lag that's happening. Okay, so if we take a look at the lows and highs, if it is if it is semi-diurnal, that means that there are two highs and two lows per day. So, so every change in tide happens every six hours and twelve and a half minutes. So every six hours twenty uh, and twelve and a half minutes, there's a new low and new high. Uh, or you could say if it's diurnal, it's every uh, twelve and a half hours. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 12, 12 hours and 25 minutes, I should say. 12 hours, 25 minutes. So what causes tides to be geographically different? Okay. So we have these, these points on our planet where the tides are, are pretty vastly different. Um, at first, I thought it had to do with the fact that sometimes parts of our planet are closer to the moon or closer to the sun than other parts because we're on a tilt and it depends on the seasons, but it has less to do with the seasons and more to do with the continents, right? So, so there is some impact because of the tilt of the earth. Okay. The, the, the alignment of the sun and the moons and the elliptical orbits. We've already kind of talked about that, but that's why there's going to be differences. But another one that was more surprising to me is that it's because of the continents on this planet. So if the if the Earth were a perfect sphere without the continents, without the land masses, all areas on the planet would experience two equally proportioned 
high and low tides every lunar day. So every 24 hours and 50 minutes, they'd have equally proportioned high and low tides. So proportion is meaning that, you know, it's going to go up three feet and it's going to go down three feet. Um, and it's, and it's uh, uh, equally proportioned everywhere in the world, right? And, but we don't see that. We see some areas are diurnal where you only have one high tide and one low tide. And so that's, that's an exception to, this, to the semi-diurnal where you have two, two highs and two lows. You have some um, that are kind of mixed semi-diurnal where the highs and lows are not proportionally matched. And there are some areas in the, on the earth where semi-diurnal, where they're almost, almost um, perfectly matched in terms of the, the ratio of high and low throughout the 24 hours and 50 minutes. So why are there some, some areas of the world where, where there's semi-diurnal, diurnal, and mixed semi-diurnal? So what what happens is 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 again if the earth were a perfect sphere um, without the continents they'd all they would all experience two equally proportioned highs and lows per day per lunar day i should say per lunar day the large continents though they block the westward passage of the tidal bulge as the earth rotates counterclockwise. So again, so the earth is rotating counterclockwise, right? And there's this moon that's kind of lagging behind and it's pulling that, that ocean, that water westward. But here's the thing, these continents are getting in the way. And so the water doesn't, isn't allowed to go anywhere at that point, right? And so it, it just blocks it. And so it's it's unable to move just freely around the globe. And so what happens is what's wonderful about water is water likes the path of least resistance. And so it's going to find a path of, of least resistance and it's going to go into that bay or inlet or um, go you know down a riverbank, right? And so they end up establishing these really complex patterns around shaped around the continents, right? And those complex patterns can be greatly different than what we would expect from a scientific and physics-based point of view of what, how the tides are supposed to move based off of the moon and the sun and their respective orbits and timing of them. So, for example, the Gulf of Mexico has a diurnal tide, right? It's, it's got one high tide and one low tide per day, right? Whereas, I mean, just right around the corner, the east coast of the U.S., has a semi-diurnal diurnal tides where you have almost the same proportion of highs and lows, like pretty, you know, it's like up, down, up, down. And then, you know, the, the, the magnitude does change every 24 hours and 50 minutes, every lunar day, but it's equally proportioned. And that's just around the corner, just around the corner from the, the Gulf of Mexico, it has this, which is crazy, right? And then on the other side of the U.S., and actually, hey, let's just go south of there. Just south of there in the Caribbean, you have this mixed semi-diurnal. And on the West Coast, where uh, on the West Coast, you have se mixed semi-diurnal here on the West Coast. You have these low tides and these high tides that are, they're not proportioned the same. So you sometimes have, you have like a really, really low, low, and you have a really, and then you have like a medium high, and then you have a higher low, and then you have a high, high. For example, that's just an example. And so you have these like mixed proportions of highs and lows. And so the proportion of those tides are, are really based on 
location around the world. And so when you look at tide charts from one solar day to the next, you'll see that generally the high tides and the low tides will shift, guess what, about 50 minutes. Because <laughs> you have a solar day versus a lunar day, which is the only difference is 50 minutes. You know, there's a 50 minute lag. So that's one way, like if you don't have a tide chart, but you knew yesterday's tides approximately, the timing of them, you can calculate it just by adding about 50 minutes. You won't be able to calculate the magnitude increasing or decreasing, but you'll know when the high and when the low approximately are. It's crazy, right? So what else affects tides? Um, well, you have also the shapes of the bays and estuaries and lagoons that are attached to the ocean that that sometimes will funnel water in or prevent water from going in. Um, so the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia is a great example. That's a funneling effect where they have 15 meter tide shifts, 15 meters, 45 feet, more than 45 feet. That's incredible. That's a huge tidal shift. And so you have, a lot of things that go along with that. But that that's another thing that affects tides is are these these funneling effects uh, in different parts of the world. I found what was interesting uh, that I didn't know, but the local wind and weather patterns can also affect tides. So strong offshore winds um, can actually move water away from the coastlines, exaggerating low tide. Um, and onshore winds can can pile up water onto the shoreline which virtually eliminates low tide exposure so that that one was new to me though i had observed that happening uh over the years it just i never thought about that and then and then high pressure systems kind of calling back to one of our earlier podcasts high pressure and low pressure systems can also affect tides to a certain degree. So high pressure can depress sea levels, right? High pressure pushing down on the sea um, can and can lead to exceptionally low tides if it aligns, of course, also with the low tide that the moon and the sun are also affecting. And then conversely, low pressure comes with usually a lot of rain and cloudy overcast. And, and those conditions are typically associated with tides that are higher than predicted. So those were surprising to me that, that you've got wind and uh, weather patterns that can also affect the tides. So, you know, what affects the tides? You've got the shapes of the bays, you've got the, the sun and the moon and their elliptical orbits. Um, you have local wind and weather patterns. So we finally get to the, the question at hand. How does this understanding of the tides help us as surfers? And I kind of came up with four different areas. So one, the magnitude of the tides impact surf spots, whether they'll break or not. So if you recall from earlier podcasts that I've mentioned, um, as well as the one on peel angle, where we talk about features under the water, you know, a, a wave will shoal or begin to break when the water depth is approximately 1.3 three times the height of the wave. 
So a 10-foot wave requires about 13 feet of water to begin to break, to begin to shoal on that given feature. So obviously, if you're thinking about that one feature, say it's a sandbar, right? And that one sandbar is 13 feet deep and there's a 10-foot wave coming in. And six hours later, it's low tide. That one feature is no longer 10 feet deep. I'm sorry, 13 feet deep. <laughs> that feature is no longer 13 feet deep. And so that same 10-foot wave coming in is definitely going to break on it because it's lower tide uh, and it's less than 13 feet deep. Or let's say it is low tide and it's 13 feet, the feature is 13 feet deep and now it's coming to high tide and that feature is now 15 feet deep. Well, a 10 foot wave coming in, it's, it's maybe going to feather, but it's not going to break. And so you have obviously that effect just between something being high or low, just based on the, the magnitude of the depth of the feature. So whether it's a sandbar or a reef or rock shelf, um, it can completely eliminate a surf break. It can shift a surf break to a different feature um, or, com or completely, um, eliminate, complete, uh, eliminate the surf break completely. Number two way that it can help us as surfers, take note of the range of the tides, right? It's, it's almost equally as important as just the absolute data point, whether it's high or low, right? Because you can have a high tide, uh, and I'm using the West Coast as an example here. You can have a high tide of about three and a half feet, whereas sometimes that's a low tide. So around here, we have generally about a six-foot tidal shift depends on the time of year. Sometimes we have only have a three foot tidal shift during the time of year, right? But you have these, uh, these differences in just the range, right? In Alaska, it's like a 12 foot change. You know, it's, it goes from a negative one to 11 feet, right? And so that, that range is extremely, extremely important. Uh, around here, there are spots that only break on a four foot tide or higher. I don't even bother checking if it's then people are like, Oh, it's a high tide break. No, not necessarily. It's four feet or higher high tide break where it breaks and the direction of the swing makes a difference as well. There are breaks around here that don't even start breaking unless it's a negative tide. Right. And so those knowing the range and the magnitude of them, is again equally important as the timing of a high and a low tide number three the the rate of the tidal swing and this goes hand in hand with the magnitude and the range the rate of the tidal swing affects the quality of the waves and and even our ability to go out or even the, the ability of whether a wave is going to break nicely or not so if you have a 12 foot range in tides you got to remember 12 feet has to move within six hours, 12 and a half minutes. That's a lot of water to move in and out really, really fast. And so it develops certain currents as it moves in and out. It floods and then it ebbs, right? And the rate at that change has a lot to do with that magnitude in that range. 
and it can affect the waves coming in. Obviously, because of because of reason number one, it could stop breaking altogether or it could start breaking. Um, but also just that water moving in and out. And again, I hate saying in and out. We are moving into the bulge or we are moving out of the bulge at that rate. That's really what's happening, right? But that could affect the quality of the wave. And if you're waiting for a set to break and the, the, the swell is changing. I mean, you could look at something like in Alaska and have maybe a, maybe a one hour window when a particular break is breaking. And if it's, if it's, it's, if it's at a point of the curve where it's the steepest, right? The, the, the six and six hours, 12 and a half minutes is fixed. So you got to move 12 feet of water in six hours and 12 and a half minutes. That's fixed. That's not, that's not changing, right? So knowing that the middle two tides of this curve are moving the fastest of any curve, doesn't matter the magnitude, but the middle two tides, two, two hours of every, of every uh, uh, tide shift is moving the fastest, whether it's up or it's down. The middle two hours is moving the fastest. That means it's moving all that water the fastest. And because there's lots of water moving, the, the conditions change dramatically. But knowing that can help you determine, you know, when and where you need to paddle out, where and when you need to surf. You know, Alaska, that, that, that two-hour window can completely be eliminated if you paddle out at the wrong tidal swing, right? Then as the tide begins to shift right? It starts to slow down, right? So you have all this water, let's say it's an incoming tide and you have, you have all this water and it rushes in, in the middle two hours. And then, it, and then it starts to hit that top curve. Well, it's, it's a nice smooth parabolic arc here where it kind of slows down, slows down, and then it peaks and it just kind of goes slack, and so in that one moment of slack high tide or slack low tide, you can eliminate the impact of tide uh, as a variable in the ocean. Wind is still there. Swell is still there. Currents from wind and from swell are still there. But the current from the tide is no longer there. Uh, how long that lasts? Well, not very long. It begins to then flow back out once it gets down the other edge, right? So you, you kind of have this, this period of time uh, in the middle two hours that are really strong. And then it hits the last two hours where it slows down. And then the first two hours next. So you have this four hour kind of window where the tides are, are not playing as big of a role. Um, as one might think. Okay. So that's interesting to know. A lot of people out in the water are like, oh, we're doing the tidal switch. That's why the wave stopped. And we're going to get to that question because that is a que that is a question that I have asked many times. Like, really, is that a scientifically proven thing? And I I'm going to get to that in a second. Well, kind of like that, almost a question like that. Um, but that is an obser observation that I've made over the years. You know, at, at, oh, it's all drained out at the bottom, bottom tide. It's all drained out and the waves stop, right? Well, really? Is it just this break where that happens? Because there are certain breaks that are really, really good on an outgoing tide. And there are other breaks that are terrible on an outgoing tide. 
Uh, it also depends on the magnitude and the range of that. And so that is more locally specific. So that would be maybe a takeaway for you to really observe your local conditions and try to decide, try to try to determine what what tides and tidal shifts and changes work for you. The the last thing that I think that knowing about these tides was going to help you as a surfer is is thinking about kind of the water surrounding your surf break. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and surf at Ocean Beach quite often. And a lot of people talk about the paddle out at Ocean Beach and the currents. So the currents are affected by the swell direction and the swell size, but also by the tidal swing because of its proximity to this huge body of water just inside the Golden Gate Bridge. So once again, you have just understanding that there's all this water inside the bay that needs to flood in and ebb out every six hours, 12 and a half minutes. That's a lot of water moving. There's the North Bay, San Pablo Bay, there's San Francisco Bay, there's South Bay, there's the East Bay. That's a lot of water moving in and out. And it takes almost that long for some water it, to, to go all the way up into the, say, the Petaluma River where I'm at or I'm near, right? So, so for the tides to affect, to, to effectively become high tide up here, it's different than the high tide at Ocean Beach because at Ocean Beach, proximity-wise, it's closer to when the water starts moving in. Whereas it's got to go all the way up through the San, through San Francisco Bay, up to San Paulo Bay, and up the Petaluma River, and then all of a sudden the tide changes. And so you have these great currents that, again, that ebb and flow, but also there's a lot of water moving in and out. And how does that affect my surf break at Ocean Beach? Well, that effectively, because of all that water moving in and all that water moving out, creates a current based off the tidal shift along the beach uh, north to south. So knowing that, if I knew the tidal swing and the degree to which the tidal swing is, I can plan around when Ocean Beach is better conditions, as well as look at, oh, well, this drop from high to low isn't all that strong, so I can go mid-tidal shift and not have to deal with too much current, for example. Oh, this, this switch from, from high to low is, is six feet. I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to wait until it starts to slow down about two hours before low. Those types of strategies help immensely. Uh, I have another story of another, another place up here that has a lagoon on the inside. And again, it's a smaller scale of the San Francisco Bay, but it's the same impact. But in this lagoon, you have a very small inlet. So the, the inlet to the San Francisco Bay is pretty small. Um, the you know where the the golden gate bridge is and if you hear about the currents underneath the golden gate bridge that is a big deal like fort point you don't surf point fort point on an outgoing tide because of how strong the currents are uh, and it's because of that funneling effect so this this lagoon that i'm speaking of of the surf break there the surf breaks actually in the middle of the channel and so you would think well, if it's an outgoing tide, it's just going to pull you out to sea. It kind of does that if you're in the inlet. So you can paddle out through the inlet and make it out the back pretty easily. 
if you just follow that churn, that, that current that takes you out. Conversely, if the tide is coming in, you could be paddling out in the middle of the channel and just be held there in place. So a good strategy, look to the left, right, left of you, right of you, and paddle to the left, right, get out of the inlet altogether, walk to the edge of, of the inlet, paddle out there, paddle over to where the channel takeoff zone is, and then paddle in to resume surfing. So these little strategies is all based off of my knowledge of what the tides are doing during that particular time that I'm surfing. And it can help or hurt my energy levels, the number of waves I catch, so on and so forth. So you got all these things. You got you got tides affecting whether waves will break. You've got the range being being almost equally as important as the absolute data points, just knowing how high or low it is. Um, and the, the, the tidal swings and the rate of water coming in and out affecting currents. And then of course, all the surrounding water that's creating currents of their own and delays. Uh, so, you know, on that last point, one thing I didn't mention is that when there's large bodies of water, in like an inlet or a lagoon like the San Francisco Bay or this other lagoon I'm talking about, there is a bit of a delay sometimes between when the tides shift and the current starts to turn around. So for example, at Ocean Beach, San Francisco, let's say there's a, a peak high tide at say 10 a.m. And it tops out at 10 a.m. Well, a lot of people will say, well, I'll surf from say 10 to 12 and then from 12 to two, I'm not going to surf because it's this, this flow out, but there's a bit of a delay because there's so much water moving into the bay and so much water moving out of the bay. There's almost a slight delay between what you experience in the water and in the surf between what's on these charts. So knowing kind of approximately what that delay is helps you as well. Uh, beat the crowd. I'm not going to tell you what that delay is because that's my little, competitive advantage. <laughs> you guys get to try that on your own. So we, we come to that final question that we're dying to know. Does an incoming high tide, for example, help waves get stronger? We've all seen that. We've all heard that. Oh yeah, you guys got to be here on incoming tide. Assuming that the break breaks on a high tide, let's say, right? And it's not feature-based, was there science behind that? Well, we have, we can observe it. And back in 2008 at the University of Plymouth in the UK, there were some scientists that actually wanted to test this. And they actually did conclude that there was a maximum in wave power consistently occurring on the rising tide. And they even gave us a time, about an hour and six minutes prior to high tide. So... You have this curve where in the middle two hours, it's moving the fastest. But what they're saying is that it, its impact on wave strength maxed out at one hour and six minutes prior to the high tide consistently. And it was irregardless of wave refraction, shoaling effects, sea breezes, reflection, all sorts of things that they tested, all these different things that could impact the power of a wave. They eliminated and they said, yeah, this was solely a tidal change. Now, we, what my question is, was there another study that, that studied 
does an outgoing tide diminish energy? You know, an hour and six minutes prior to low tide, for example. Uh, I haven't found any data on that. If you have, please send it my way. I'd love to. I'd love to read it. But at least there's a little bit of science behind that mythological observation we all thought was true, and we experienced it. And if there is a little bit of an extra push an hour before high tide, and it's scientifically proven, then maybe there is some logic and reasoning behind other areas where the tide can impact the power of the wave in a negative way. But for now, hopefully, we've all learned now that the, the tides can, you know, they're, they're interacting with water surrounding the surf break, the features underwater, the swell characteristics arriving at the shoreline. It all affects the waves we break. And hopefully you've got a little bit more knowledge on why that is and it helps you identify when to go surfing um, and when not to go surfing for example so best thing to do now is to study your local break and identify the characteristics of the tide that it likes right and that takes a bit because the swell isn't always the same right but the tides are pretty predictable it's the one thing we can control is knowing when the tides are going to change is the one thing we can control so i really want you to be a master at the tides for your local break because it is the one thing you can control right you can't control everything else you can't control the wind or the swell forecast that can come and go both of those can be delayed but the, the tides the tides are pretty fixed and now that you know that there's all this water moving in every six hours, 12 and a half minutes, in or out, and technically we're moving in or out of the bulge every six hours, 12 and a half minutes. Now you can create strategies to help you save energy and catch even more waves. So I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I had, I had a good time researching and putting this together. Reach out with questions, and until I speak to you again, I'll see you in the water.